I like very much the distinction between complicated and complex. As human beings, as fallen sinners, we can sometimes deal with complicated problems. Only God can deal with complex ones. And so we have to study what God teaches us and try to apply it. And what God teaches us through Scripture and what God teaches us through history as we see what's developed over the years in our country. You're in for three lectures today, and I'll give you just a quick roadmap as to what's coming up. I'll start out uh, today dealing with six misunderstandings that we often have concerning poverty and concerning the relevance of history. And then I'll give you some examples of Christian successful efforts in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. Give you as many examples as we have time for. At lunchtime, I'll discuss with you seven principles for effective compassion and then get into the 20th century and look at how those principles have been followed or discarded. And then later in the afternoon, I'll try to continue my numeric progression from six to seven principles, and then I'll give you eight axioms and predictions as I try to explore some Christian alternatives to the welfare state. But let's start out with these six misunderstandings. I mean, first of all, I'll be talking with you today a lot about history. Why is that relevant at all? Because after all, that was then, this is now. America is a much bigger society, many more people, many more complications. But as I started to explore this history nearly three decades ago, I started to realize that with all the complications, America in some ways, and particularly dealing with questions of poverty, is not hugely different from what went on in the 19th century. If you go to the late 19th century, you see that there were enormous problems of drug addiction. They didn't have meth at that point, but opium, particularly after the Civil War, became a frequent drug of use. If you look at family formation, Today we have about 40%, maybe even 42% of kids born out of wedlock. That wasn't the case in the late 19th century. But you often had abandonment with fathers sometimes leaving behind wives and children and heading off to the territories to make their fortune or escape some of the complications of their lives. You had uh, epidemics sometimes that would rage through cities, yellow fever and others, often killing parents, leaving kids behind. In New York City, in the mid mid and late 19th century, there were tens of thousands of orphans or abandoned kids running around. And there was one uh, pastor who set up uh, orphanages all over New York City and then created wagon trains, orphan trains they were called, that took kids and was able and placed them in homes throughout the Middle West. I wouldn't be surprised if some came to Joplin. And I've met around the country at times with descendants of people whose lives were saved 
by heading west on orphan trains. You look at the distance between rich and poor. And today we're a lot more spread out and we have some affluent areas, we have some poor areas. It wasn't as spread out in those days, but if you look at the average uh, time of travel from, let's say, an affluent part of a town to a, to a poor part, very similar to today, where it's a lot, we can get around a lot faster. But it's not as if uh, today, out of sight, out of mind, for people in affluent areas, and it wasn't then. No, the same sort of thing happened then, except the distances were a little bit compressed. So you can go through situation after situation after situation. And actually, the problems, late 19th century, a lot of big cities, big cities then, big cities now, drugs then, drugs now, alcoholism then. Um, the largest women's organization, in many ways a feminist organization, in the late 19th century was the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And there was a reason for that, because there was lots of alcoholism, particularly affecting men and leading to all kinds of problems, including crime and family abandonment and, um, and wife beating and lots of other terrible things. So first thing to understand is that history actually, the history of early America is relevant to our own because the problems weren't all that different. And that's often overlooked. Secondly, the question is, well, if there were, and as I'll point out there were lots of Christian charitable activities over the first couple of centuries of American history, why isn't that better known? Well, as I started to explore what had been written, I certainly saw there was a prejudice among historians, particularly historians at major universities, who tended to assume that until government got involved, and got involved big time, nothing much had been done to fight poverty. That was the assumption. And if all you're doing on an expedition is looking for elephants, you're probably going to miss the foxes and uh, monkeys and other inhabitants of the jungle. So typical thing was to look at governmental programs and assume that before government was involved, nothing much happened. And that I found out was just not true. I had an opportunity to spend a year at the Library of Congress, wandering on the stacks, blowing dust off old documents, and seeing the enormous outpouring of Christian volunteerism. And some Jewish volunteerism as well that happened in large cities across the country. So the history is relevant to us. It's not well known, but it should be better known. And I'll try to give you some examples of that today. Third misunderstanding, in a way, our theology of work. One of the things you see in the Bible right away is that Adam in the Garden of Eden, before original sin, had lots of work to do. He was the first gardener, and his job was to keep the Garden of Eden in good shape. And he also had intellectual work to do. He was supposed to name all the animals. And whatever name he gave to them, that was the name. And he had to do that by being somewhat of a zoologist. What's the character of this animal? What's the characteristics? How do I give a name that will actually apply and apply very well to this animal? So Adam had physical work to do. He had intellectual work to do. Uh, work was a positive. Yes, following the fall, we have to earn our bread by the sweat of our brows, and so sometimes the work becomes unpleasant. But work by itself is hugely important. It's one of the things that makes us human and differentiates us in many ways from animals. So the tendency today is to say, well, yeah, people work, but if people don't work, that's okay. Uh, we now have an enormous amount. I mean, our unemployment rate is only, let's say, about 5%. But at least twice, probably three times as many of those of, of people have given up on work. And that's wrong. It's biblically wrong. It's humanly wrong. 
Because work is one of the things that we need. Not just to earn our bread, but to, in a sense, to make us fully human. To be made in God's image, and as God is creative, we can be creative. As God built in a very entrepreneurial way, we can build in very entrepreneurial ways. And when that's taken away from people, that's very sad. So we need to improve our theology of work. And a misunderstanding the present is that often we don't think that's all that important. It's an option. It really shouldn't be an option. Everyone can help others and help themselves in the same process. Fourth, we tend to have a misunderstanding of poverty. One of the things I learned reading some of these 19th century documents is that they distinguished very clearly between poverty and what they called pauperism, P-A-U-P-E-R. There was nothing dishonorable about being a poor person. You could be poor for lots of reasons. There may not have been enough rain that year for you to farm successfully. Or uh, you had a factory, you were making something, and sales dropped and the factory closed down. There were lots of reasons to be poor. And there was nothing dishonorable about that at all. But it was dishonorable to become a pauper, a person who was sunk into poverty, sunk into hopelessness, who did not really understand that he was created in the image of God, but was content to lie around and not work and feel a sense of entitlement, perhaps other people would do things for him. They believe that everyone is capable of work. Everyone, whether rich or poor, can work. And some people would be affluent, some people would be poor. But the goal was not for people to become paupers, P-A-U-P-R, and they made a strong distinction along those lines. Uh, Fifth, and this kind of goes with the idea of poverty versus pauperism, that a poor person is actually at the middle of the ladder. He's not down at the bottom. He's at the middle. He can go up towards more work, better work, more affluence, or he can go down to becoming a pauper. And this made it clear that people who want to help have to be careful about how they want to help. The goal is to be generous. That's the first thing for all of us to remember. But then the second thing is to be intelligently generous, to be generous in a way that helps rather than hurts. And you can hurt. You can hurt by giving people stuff. And I think as parents, we know that. If you just give kids stuff, then you're really hurting them in some ways. You're not enabling them, helping them to be all they can be. And the same thing in a society. You can, it is good to be generous. It is particularly good to help by being generous. But you can be generous in a way that's harmful if you do it unthinkingly and unwisely. And we tend to have a one-way theory of assistance. Uh, We tend to read the famous passage in chapter 25 uh, of of Matthew where um, Jesus says, As much as you did to the least of these, you did to me. So feed the hungry, and that's like feeding Jesus. Clothe the naked. That's like clothing Jesus. Healing him when he's sick, that's like healing Jesus in a way. As much as you do to the least of these, you do to me. But the previous understanding, going back to 18th and 19th centuries, is that cuts both ways. If you do something to the least of these that's harmful, it's like doing that to Jesus. If you give money to a person that you're pretty sure is going to go into drugs, it's like sticking heroin into Jesus' veins. So you have to be careful in what you do. Generosity, but careful generosity, wise generosity. What you do to the least of these, you're doing to Jesus for better or for worse. 
we tend to have a one-way theory of assistance. It's always good. It's always the Christian thing to do to hand out a dollar, hand out $10, do something. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. You have to think it through. And we'll talk about ways to do that. And then sixth, sixth misunderstanding uh, is that is that um, everyone wants to get well. Everyone who's poor wants to do, if you give them an opportunity to do what it takes to not be poor. Uh, Jesus was wiser than that. He understood not just complications, but complexities. So if you look at uh, chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, there's a guy who's been sitting by the pool at Bethesda for 38 years. He's been on essentially the ancient Israel form of welfare at that point. People would give him stuff at times. He could sit there. 38 years he was there. And he was sitting by the pool of Bethesda because there was a certain, there's probably more superstition than anything else, that you get into the water and the water will make you well. And Jesus comes and looks at him and uh, the man's first impulse, he wants, he's saying, you know, can you help me get into the water? Because other people are getting in there faster. And if I got in there right away, I could be healed. And Jesus does not take him down to the water. Jesus also does not turn his back and say, well, what a stupid thing. Jesus asks him the question, do you want to get well? Crucial question. And Jesus understood that not everyone wants to get well. There are a lot of people who are incredibly sadly, I mean, you can just look at their faces with their teeth rotting and their cheeks sunken and they're on meth. But some of them don't want to get well. There are people who are drug addicts or people who are alcoholics. They essentially don't want to get well. I mean, I've interviewed lots of uh, alcoholic and formerly alcoholic homeless people. And until they, this is what I, what I was hearing often and, often and often from people in homeless shelters, until they hit bottom, they don't really want to get well. And that's very sad. You think, why, why wouldn't a person want to be out of the situation? But a lot of people get very used to misery. And in some ways, it's comfortable with misery. That's not the case for lots of people. It is the case for some people. And so you always have to ask that question that Jesus asked, do you want to get well? And then you have to discern, do they want to get well? Now, they used in the 19th century a, a set of vocabulary that really grates on our ears these days. They talked about the worthy versus the unworthy poor. And just about every um, book on poverty fighting that I ran across as I started to research was talking about that distinction and saying, boy, how callous these people were. They're saying that some people are unworthy, and that just shows a misunderstanding of what they were talking about. But again, the, word, the words are not great words to use these days. I don't tend to use them, but if any of you are familiar with this or you read some, some stuff, you might see that. Uh, it wasn't worthiness or unworthiness to be helped. It was the sense of who could you help who would actually make use of the help. That's what being worthy was. In other words, everyone, and this is the case today, you have a limited amount of time, you have a limited amount of money, you want to use it in a way that will really help people. So you want to find who was worthy to be helped because that person wants to get well, that person wants to change. Because if you give money to a person or time really to a person who doesn't want to change, you are wasting your time and your money. So this is an important part of discernment. So those are, the, those are six misunderstandings that I've tried to lay out here uh, that we should work away from. Now let me give you some examples of how this worked historically. And you can go back really to colonial times. I'll give you just a couple of examples here. There's one from uh, 
let's see, 1673. I used to go back and look at what, at the records, I ran across some minutes from town council meetings in Massachusetts and in Connecticut. And here's one from 1673, just an example. Uh, these are the minutes. Uh, Syrian Squire and Sam Morehouse agreed to take care of Roger Knapp's family in this time of their great weakness. That's what the minute said. I don't know anything more than that, what exactly that meant, but, you know, they agreed to take care of this family. And this was something that city councils, town councils tried to say, yeah, who wants to step up at this point? If there aren't relatives to help, who will step up and actually help these people in need? And it wasn't, this was the, the sense of people who had a room in their house, they had time to help. Everyone was encouraged to do that. And family, and one, one person would, or a couple of people would step up to help this group. Another people would have to step up to help another person and so forth. This is what the town councils did. They weren't appropriating money. They were saying, can we connect people who need help with people who are willing to help? Then there were some organizations that started, nonprofits, I suppose we'd call them today. Uh, here's one. This was organized in 1684 called the Scots Charitable Society. Because contrary to rumor and stereotype, Scots were not always tight-fisted. Here were actually Scots who were charitable. And my, my wife has a Scottish ancestry, and so uh, we can joke about that. I'm, I'm happy with all the Scots I know. Um, but here's the Scottish Charitable Society, and I love this language here. They, they opened the bowels of our compassion to a widow, Mrs. Stewart. She had lost the use of her left arm. Her husband was washed overboard in a storm, and the Scots Charitable Society opened the bowels of compassion. And let me just explain that weird word there. Um, the Hebrew word often translated in the Bible for compassion is rachum, which means womb, the womb that a baby occupies for his first nine months until he pops out into this bigger, this bigger womb. So you can see the meaning of compassion, the, the tight connection that a mom has with her, with her child. This is the word that was used to mean compassion. And the Greek word, if you look in the New Testament, the, and you see the word compassion, often the word is splanknoi, which stands for bowels. And again, the close connection between a person and his or her bowels. And this is where I think they had this, open the bowels of our compassion. It came because they read the Bible and some other new Greek and they describe in those terms. How many of you have ever heard of a fellow named Stephen Gerard? I would be surprised if any hands go up. One hand goes up for hand here. Okay, because she's, she's, she, knows, she knows about Stephen Gerard. Just about every school child, an adult, in the 19th century would know about Stephen Gerard because his story was, was told. He was a merchant. He was born in France in 1750. He lost... Sight in one eye at age eight, left home as a boy, settled in Philadelphia at the start just before the American Revolution. He built a shipping business. He became one of America's richest men. But what made him a national hero was not his money, but his work during a yellow fever epidemic of 1793. He paid hospital bills of those who were suffering. He supplied food and fuel, and he cared for some of the sick himself. And later on, he took many orphans into his own home. He established a school for poor orphan boys that gained biblical teaching and also the challenge to work hard. That was Stephen Gerard, and everyone knew about him. He was an example. Yeah, I suppose he was in the 
in terms of money, but he was an example to the 99% everyone in terms of being willing to personally be involved, take people into his home, use his money for charitable purposes, and he was upheld as a great national hero. People learned about him. I mean, what philanthropists in those days and now are, are taught about in schools? Uh, maybe there are some. Maybe Microsoft and Apple people or something. But uh, they're not really personally involved for the most part the way Stephen Gerard was. The idea was personal involvement, challenging personal and spiritual help. Now, there were, there were sometimes people went down blind alleys. Uh, in the 1820s, in New York, there was a brief attempt to distribute money to the poor. And the New York Secretary of State, uh, uh, Jay Yates, uh, wrote a, did some research on the effects of this. This is in 1824. And he said that this, what they called outdoor relief, just giving stuff to people, had come to encourage beggars and profligate vagrants. They often didn't use euphemisms in those days. But he said that the overseers, the people who were responsible for giving out money in this brief New York experiment, not infrequently granted relief without sufficient examination into the circumstances of the party claiming it. So that's exactly what we've been talking about, and they realized this just did not work very well. Philadelphia at one point set up an outdoor relief committee, and they decided, well, there are some kids born out of wedlock. It was pretty rare in those days that they were illegitimate children. But they said, well, what are we going to do here? We're going to give outdoor relief to these poor families and kids. But if we don't, if we give it to moms who aren't married, then the city of brotherly love may actually be, and I'll quote here, may be giving an encouragement to vice. End quote. So they really were troubled about what to do. And they eventually decided we're not going to, well, they eventually decided to stop their outdoor relief program generally because they realized it was contributing to vagrancy and vice. But they particularly said this just not, is not going to work if you actually encourage people to have children outside of wedlock. Marriage is really important. Having a dad is really important to, to little boys and girls. And we have to be careful not to encourage that. Now, what they did, again, they, 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 start, 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 they started setting up charitable institutions. They would work with people, but it had, they had to have that desire to change. And, you know, a mom who gave birth to a child out of wedlock, they still considered her a human being made in the image of God, but they did not do things that would encourage her to have a second and third and fourth child out of wedlock. They really pushed marriage very hard. Uh, the American Quarterly Review did a big review in 1835 of government subsidies. And... Uh, concluded that they seemed kind in theory, but they enabled individuals to become wasteful, profligate, and idle by promising them a support if they do so. Which, again, is if you look at some of our programs now, including the Housing First program that gets some homeless people off the street by immediately giving them housing, but it doesn't encourage them to work. And so what are people doing all day in their houses that they now have in their apartments? Uh, sometimes doing things that Create, I'll give you another quotation from this 1835 study, generation after generation of hereditary paupers. So uh, this was done at the governmental level when there are studies. 
But it was also something taught in schools. Kids learned about Stephen Gerrard. Kids also learned, how many of you have ever read, seen, seen one of the old McGuffey readers? Okay, a number of you are familiar with that. Here's the 1844 edition of McGuffey Reader. There was a dialogue about poverty fighting between a, a Mr. Phantom, spelled F-A-N-T-O-M, but obviously Phantom is not real, Mr. Phantom, who talked in very abstract terms, and then a Mr. Goodman, who actually paid attention to the needs around him. And here's the discussion they had. Here's Mr. Phantom. I despise a narrow field. Oh, for the reign of universal benevolence. I want to make all mankind good and happy. And then Mr. Goodman says, oh, dear me. Sure, that must be a wholesale sort of a job. Had you not better try your hand at a town or neighborhood first? And Mr. Phantom says, sir, I have a plan in my head for relieving the miseries of the whole world. And Mr. Goodman says, well, the utmost extent of my ambition at present is to redress the wrongs of a poor apprentice who has been abused by his master. And Mr. Phantom then says, you must not apply to me for the redress of such petty grievances. It is provinces, empires, continents that the benevolence of the philosopher embraces. Everyone can do a little paltry good to his next neighbor. And then McGuffey and his reader gave Mr. Goodman a a good comeback. Everyone can, but I do not see that everyone does. You have such a noble zeal for the millions, yet feel so little compassion for the individuals. This is what kids learn in school. Think about the individuals. Think about one person at a time, and then one can one, 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 and you get to more. Um, I can give you some more quotations from people like the governor of Delaware and others, but I'll skip by here. Uh, the other thing they'd learned in schools was ancient history. And here's one of the textbooks of the time that uh, in ancient Rome, politicians of the time used money to the poor to obtain positions which they were far from competent to hold. That was one of the lessons from classical studies, uh, which... To put it into 1930s parlance, from one of FDR's aides, you know, tax, tax, spend, spend, elect, elect. And um, Nathan Ware in 1845, a historian, uh, said that uh, he looked at ancient Rome and he said, well, here was the problem that the politicians trying to appeal to the poor and get their votes would just be handing out bread and circuses. And I'll just paraphrase here that, uh, that in America, if we're not careful, uh, we'll do the same thing. Poor voters will give power to those who offer them money. Um, let's see, a few minutes left here. Just keep, give you a few other examples here. Pastors would preach about this. So kids learned this in school. Officials learned it when they did studies. Here's a pastor named William Ruffner. Uh, who gave sermons and then wrote a book called Charity and the Clergy in 1853. And he said that idleness and improvidence result whenever there are large funds provided, and especially when provided by state taxation and dispersed by state officials. He said, charity is a work requiring great tenderness and sympathy, and agents who do their work for a price rather than out of love should not be trusted. The keepers of poor houses fall into a business, an unfeeling way of doing their duties, which is wounding and often cruel to the objects of their attention. 
And he also explained that contributions of cash were abstract, contributions of time were concrete. And he said, this is hard work. I'll quote, we'll give you one more quotation from him. To cast a contribution into the box brought to the hand, or to attend committees and anniversary celebrations, are very trifling exercises of Christian self-denial and devotion compared with what is demanded in the weary perambulations walking through the street, the contact often with rude and repulsive people. So again, no euphemisms there, but he said, Christian denial, self-denial, and devotion. That's what they're looking for, not just feeling good about stuff. Um, There was some opposition in the mid-century, 1850s. The mayor of Boston said, city government has the obligation to meet whatever need exists. The Waltham Sentinel from a suburb of Boston, Waltham, said the poor generally should claim government provision as their right. He started to see some people in newspapers. Uh, the, uh, the city treasury, uh, every worker has an equitable and Christian right to a dividend of the city treasury. This is in the Providence Journal in 1857. He started to have these impulses, people saying, and I'll explain after at lunchtime a little bit more about this as this got bigger, but... People fought it. Give you an example here. Uh, Franklin Pierce in 1854, President Pierce. The Congress passed legislation for federal construction and maintenance of mental hospitals that were needed. But Franklin Pierce vetoed the bill. He said, we all need to and want to help the mentally ill, but there's a danger here. If Congress has the power to make provision for the indigent insane... It has the same power for the indigent who are not insane. I cannot find any authority in the Constitution for making the federal government the great almoner of public charity throughout the United States. This bill, worthy though it seems, will be, would be prejudicial rather than beneficial to the noble offices of charity, since federal funds would end up substituting for local insistence. Should this bill become a law and Congress makes provision here and in other instances the foundations of charity will be dried up at home, end quote. And actually, that's the way it worked out. There were, when Pierce vetoed the bill, private funds came forward, church funds contributed, and this, uh, a mental hospital was constructed, but not with government money. And, you know, example after example, I, I could quote some more about the demoralizing effect of relief that people talked about. And this is all from their experience. Um, I'll, I'll end with one with one quotation now from, uh, from Mary Richmond, who was a charity executive in Baltimore. She said, uh, government welfare is the least desirable form of relief because it comes from what is regarded as a practically inexhaustible source, and people who once receive it are likely to regard it as a right, as a permanent pension, implying no obligation on their part. She she went on to say that relief given without reference to friends and neighbors is accompanied by moral loss. Poor neighborhoods are doomed to grow poorer and more sordid whenever the the natural ties of neighborliness are weakened by our well-meant but unintelligent interference. And she wrote that her hardest task was the teaching of volunteers, quoting here, whose kindly but condescending attitudes has quite blinded them to the everyday facts of neighborhood life. To be effective, and here she's talking about middle-class volunteers, to be effective, volunteers have to leave behind, quote, a conventional attitude toward the poor, seeing them through the comfortable haze of our own excellent intentions. 
and content to know that we wish them well without being at any great pains to know them as they really are. And so here again, going back to what I mentioned starting out, she talked about middle of the ladder, poverty is different from pauperism, and volunteers have to learn that, quote, well-meant interference, unaccompanied by personal knowledge of the circumstances, often does more harm than good and becomes a temptation rather than a help. That's the heritage we have of Christian poverty fighters who really wanted to help, but always wanted to ask Jesus' question to start off. Do you want to get well? And then they looked for a commitment of that sort. That's enough for right now. We'll continue at lunchtime. Thank you very much for your attention.